You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 47, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. Today's guest is Dr. Deborah Herkelroth, an OBGYN who's in her own private practice, Vitality Gynecology, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Her career path was fairly traditional, as she worked as both an employed physician and in private practice in a regular OBGYN practice, where she did obstetrics and gynecology. A few years ago, she decided to leave the traditional medical model and enter the direct care plan where she provides gynecological exams, aesthetics, wellness, nutrition on a membership basis, and an a la carte for patients who are interested in that instead of the traditional insurance model. And as it has been with the other direct primary care and direct care physicians I've spoken to, this new model works better for her both professionally, personally, and spiritually. Interestingly, Dr. Herkelroth also serves on the American Osteopathic Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is a credentialing and recredentialing board for osteopathic physicians. As you know, we've spoken a number of times about maintenance certification in the show, and so we get a little behind-the-scenes look at what it's like serving on this board, how it might be different than the allopathic board, which, for those of you who are not familiar, allopathics are the MDs, osteopathics are the DOs. And beginning in 2020, the ACGME will include rules that will encompass both osteopathic and allopathic programs, so there'll be more standardization, which, of course, removes some of the uniqueness and the ability to have different processes within the country in residency programs. This is, of course, something we'll discuss and Dr. Herkrow's thoughts on this process. But it also brings up the interesting possibility that physicians may have an opportunity to certify under a different board and could potentially provide some, maybe, (laughs) my hope, as some competition within these boards, which would hopefully allow more options for physicians and more responsiveness from the boards in general. All the show notes can be found at theparadox.com slash 047. There you can find links to Dr. Herkelrow's practice, her Instagram account, Twitter, and the episodes that we refer to in the show. If you're a first-time listener to the show, thank you so much for stopping by. I hope you hit the subscribe button on your podcast player. It is absolutely free. Please leave a review at iTunes or whatever podcast player you're using. Those things help with the aggregation of the show and help it move to the top of the list so that others can discover the show as well. And if you're a longtime listener, thank you so much for your continued patronage. Thank you so much for sharing with your friends and family. I can tell from the download numbers that it continues to grow and gain popularity, which far exceeds what I have ever anticipated when I began the show a little over a year ago. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Deborah Herkelroth, owner of Vitality Gynecology Aesthetics and Wellness. Enjoy. Well, hello again. I'm here with Dr. Deborah Herkelroth, who is an obstetrician gynecologist in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And 
today's story is going to be one of someone who's kind of transitioned through life, I guess, to a new spot where she's participating in direct primary care. We've had a lot of direct primary care physicians on the show. We've talked about sort of the models. I've tried to get various specialties. And today we're going to go with gynecology. I guess we're not going to talk about OB specifically. Uh, but first, I'd like to welcome Dr. Herkelroth to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, you're the owner of Vitality. Uh, you did your medical school at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, your DO, and undergraduate at McDaniel College, which is formerly Western Maryland, which we talked about a little bit beforehand, which is a misnomer since it's not in Western Maryland. Uh, you did your residency at Memorial Hospital in New York, Pennsylvania, and you sit on the board of the uh, American Osteopathic Board of Gynecologists, so the AOBOG, so that's different than the American Board of College, Oste- uh, I guess the AB. Is it ABOG? Is that the one for the allopathics? Correct, yeah. Okay, all right. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, let's talk a little bit about your origin story, uh, which I've sort of been getting to recently. Uh, why don't you walk us through um, how you got it, how you decided to go to medicine, and then when you're in med school, why you decided for obstetrics and gynecology? Yeah, sure. So I've always been um, just a little overachiever and um, just wanted to be fulfilled, but it sounds corny, but help other people too, but definitely needed something to stimulate my brain. Um, so I, I mean, I always kind of excelled um, in school and I just wanted, I, I wanted something more, um, a little more challenging out of a career. So when I was in college, I kind of made my own externship and um, there was, it was, I lived in a well, McDaniel um, College, which was Western Maryland, as you said, was is in Carroll County, Maryland, which is where I grew up. And um, there's a rural hospital there, and I made the externship there, and I um, shadowed all different parts of the hospital. It was actually fascinating because, I mean, I was only probably like 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I spent some time uh, with an obstetrician who wound up being a lifelong friend, actually. I didn't know him beforehand. And I remember, I mean, I didn't get to do much. I mean, I just watched, but I remember he let me... Um, go out and tell the father um, after a baby was born, you know, the sex of the baby and that everything was okay. And I just cried. I, I was very moved yeah. by the whole situation. Uh-huh. So I think at that point I decided that uh, de- medicine was definitely for me. And I, even at that young age, I thought I was going to do OB, but um, then when I went, I got into med school and um, went to Philly, as you said. And then when I did my rotations, I kind of circled around that. And I thought for a while I would do even maybe critical care because it was some people call it mental masturbation, but I mean, it's just a lot of thinking and <laughs> yeah, right. hands on. but honestly, when I got back to OB um, on rotation, I loved it. And I love the diversity of it. I, um, I love the fact that you do deliveries, but you also do surgery and you're in the office where a lot of things um, are all either like maybe all in the office or all in the hospital or mostly in the OR. And I, I didn't, I, I love the diversity. And I also loved that I could really relate to young women. And I also mm-hmm. loved as I went through medicine even more that it was more about health than sickness. And um, I, I really think that the longer I do this and the, I just want to, I don't know, sickness doesn't appeal to me as much as health. And that actually takes us into how I wound up doing what I'm doing now. I'm very, very much into wellness. Right. Um, yeah. And I, and I talked to Dr. Grant about this, who's an obstetrician a couple episodes ago. And I, I think people don't recognize that how profound the, the birthing process is to even clinicians who are around. I mean, you were, you weren't a physician at the time. You're just a, just a kid yeah. <laughs> kind of being involved sort of peripherally in the process. But it is, I mean, it is one of the most emotionally charged sort of times with, you can have with other people. It's very intimate. It, it's, it's nothing that you sort of expect. And I'm, I mean, I've barely involved in some ways in a, as an anesthesiologist, like in a C-section room or something, but it's, it was many years before I would like not be really moved by it. I mean, to, to for it to just be routine enough that you just sort of aren't sort of amazed and in awe. And still, you know, when I don't do OB for a while, I go back it. I mean, it's, it can, I can definitely see how that draws people and sucks them into the specialty. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. And it's interesting because I thought as well that in the beginning I was moved a lot more as well. And then I thought it would become, you know, not never mundane, never, because you never know what's going to happen, but the emotional part would wear off. But you know, every once in a while you'd click with somebody and, um, or there was a couple that just so in love and so kind to each other mm-hmm. and you know, whatever it might be. And I would still cry like even to the end. And, I mean, it wasn't as nearly as frequent, but I, I could be moved to tears pretty easily, especially when you don't sleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
fatigue, it's amazing what fatigue can do to you. It is. Uh, and looking at your bio too, and I didn't mention this earlier, but uh, you spent some time in Iowa. I actually trained in Iowa, and my wife is from Northern Iowa in Four Cities, right outside of Mason City. So she spent a lot of time in. You're there for three years. So that so that's sort of where you began your career, right? After your residency, you. You no, actually, to, uh, um, after residency, and... my first job was at Franklin Square Hospital in Baltimore. So I went, oh, okay. I went home to you know the area that I was from, um, and I spent five years in as, a, as an attending at Franklin Square. So that job, I was considered a hospital employee, and that's where I kind of cut my teeth. I say on the OB side of it, it was extremely busy, um, and it was you know it was right out of residency, so I was scared to death. Um, right. Yeah, I did that for five years. Then after that, my husband got his cardiology fellowship in actually Mason City, Iowa. We didn't talk about mm-hmm. this before, but that's funny because, you know, I was a pretty big state, but yeah, we were in Mason City for three years and I kind of feel like that was my surgical fellowship. They did a ton of surgery out there. I was in a, the only OB group in, in Mason City and I was the only woman. So I was also extremely busy, but um, out there, I was also a hospital employee, but as I'm sure you know, in the Midwest, it's just a whole different situation as a physician. Um, they yeah. need you more and I, therefore I think appreciate you more. I, obviously, that's not it, the way it is across the board, but I just it was just a different environment. And so, and also out there, the doctors worked together. Like in the OR, for example, we helped each other instead of a resident helping. So I really learned so much when I was out there surgically. And so it was kind of, looking back, it was a great way to do everything. You know, the OB, you really do need to get that down because that's where the most acuity is. But obviously, there's acuity in surgery as well. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, Iowa is a very interesting state. I mean, I loved Iowa. I was there for eight years um, in Iowa City, and I go back all the time because my wife has family there still, and and we've been to River City, which is Mason City. That's where um, was it Meredith Wilson? Is that his name? Mm-hmm. The one who wrote the, the Music uh, Man. Music Man? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's I think a statue in one of the yep. parks there. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I and I think and the one thing I miss about Iowa is that the people are really great. I mean, it's just. It's funny, even if you wear like an Iowa shirt around here in Michigan and someone, they'll come up to you and say, hey, I'm from Iowa. And I even know. if it's something like 10, 20 years, it's kind of a weird thing about that state. I've never had that for anyone else. And so anyway, uh, I, I missed my time there, but I uh, was happy to leave and actually go to a place with trees and lakes and rivers and stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, every place has got its thing. Yeah. Um, so you've you worked a couple jobs, I guess you'd say traditional uh, OBGYN jobs. And then you've you've launched a new career. So why don't you go into the vitality and sort of how you got to get the decision? Uh, and then I guess I guess it's sort of your thinking and sort of what you created. Sure. Well, after we were finished in Iowa, then we came back to Harrisburg, which is where my husband's from. And we really did look at jobs between Baltimore and Harrisburg, what wound up here. And I'm glad we did. I, I really love it here. It's a great place to raise a family. But um, I worked in a tr- – then for the first time, I was in private practice. And um, I was – with a, a local practice here and did traditional OBGYN for, we got here in 2010 and I left in 2017 to open Vitality. So it was really good because um, there's not a ton of private practice anymore. And mm-hmm. um, I, I needed to learn how to run a Well, I didn't know at the time, but learning how to run a business obviously came in pretty handy for me. And um, right. yeah, I mean, and it was wonderful and it was a good group. It just, there were just, nothing's perfect. And I ultimately, I think I just outgrew it. And I was like a lot of doctors, I was fed up with so many things. And, um, especially, I mean, I'm a talker and I really like to get to know my patients and you just can't in traditional medicine. There's not enough time. The way we make money as physicians in traditional medicine is volume and because we're reimbursed by insurance companies. So you have to see a lot of patients and, um, that just, got old and there was a lot of other things, but Mm -hmm. ultimately I, I, I gotta tell you the way I learned about direct care. Now I call it direct care, not direct primary care, because I'm really not, OBGYN is hard, you know, are you a primary care physician? Are you not a primary care physician? I don't know, but I just call it direct (laughs) care. So, um, but I learned about it on social media and honestly, there's obviously good and bad things about social media, but it has changed my life in so many ways, social media. So, um, I, so like through Facebook, is that how? Yeah. Just so I'm on really? this physician mommy group, um, PMG. Oh, yeah, it's called. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure My wife's on that too. Right. I mean, yeah. there's so I, there's uh, there's probably like eighty thousand women on that. Group. Yeah, it's, tens of thousands of people. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, and and it's amazing for so many things. But then there's all these subgroups that break off, and I don't even know. But somehow I got into a conversation about 
you know, thinking outside the box. And someone said, hey, have you heard of direct care or direct, direct primary care? And I said, no. And they said, well, here, let me add you to this group. And they did. And then the people on the direct primary care group are, and I know you probably know some of them, they are just exceptional. So uh-huh. reading all that, honestly, it motivated me. And I thought, you know what, I can do this. So that's kind of how I, I got my feet wet. It was a timing thing with my the job I was in, as well as just fortuitously coming across the direct care, direct primary care Facebook page. And then I feel like once you get an idea in your mind, you kind of milk it and then it just comes to fruition. If you, you know, once, once it's there, you just, you just follow it through. So that's how it happened. So we've talked to on the show a number of times about what, what drives physicians and, um, when you do when they do surveys, even today, you know what the number one satisfier is professionally for physicians. Eighty five percent say it's the relationship with their patients, and so and I've always made the the point that if I mean our relationships are with their patients are totally different depending on specialty, uh, but fundamentally that's what drives us into medicine and to and keeps us uh, keeps our soul. And so I wonder if that's if in many ways one, as soon as you hear that sort of alternative me- model. And you think, oh, I could sort of, my relationship with my patients changes and the way I do practice is different, that it's almost inevitable that you end up sort of where you are now. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on, like you said, it depends on your specialty and your personality. But for me, I have never been happier. Uh, never. Yeah, that's In, per, You know, professionally. So, so talk about Vitality, what you decided to do and, um, you know, like any sort of obstacles you might have had. I don't know if there's no compete things or yeah. you know, other oh, problems yeah. like that within town. Um, well, I, I I was ready to walk away from OB. I had a wonderful career and I loved it, but I it was hard. I mean, it, yeah. the call, honestly, and we, I was busy. And uh, so it's not healthy. I mean, you see movies and Game of Thrones, you know, they, they torture people by not letting them sleep. Well, that was our life. Right. And so, um, you know, and there was a lot of anxiety about you never know what's going to happen. I mean, 90, probably 98% of the deliveries go great, but when, when it's not good, it's, it's bad. So um, that was a lot for me. And I think when you're young and you think, oh, I'm going to go to med school, I want to be a doctor, you have no idea what you're getting into. <laughs> I mean, right. You know, our cortexes aren't developed yet but at that age, and you just don't know. <laughs> and by the time you're in it, you owe so much money, you have no, you can't quit. So, um, Anyway, I, I was ready to walk away, and um, so that was part of it. But also, I, I, I'm a mom. I mean, my husband's a physician. I, I have a lot of other interests. I could never do OB as a solo practitioner. I, I just couldn't. You, you can't do anything. You can't travel. I mean, you, you can't go out to dinner or a movie, et cetera. So I just I knew it wasn't for me. So I had to, number one, make the decision to give up OB. Now, surgery, I got to tell you, at this point in my career, I miss surgery more than I miss OB. Um, Mm -hmm. I've always been really technical and I just, I I really loved it, but I don't miss the worry. Oh, is she going to bleed? Am I going to have to take her back to the OR? Did I miss something? You know, blah, blah, blah. So, um, but I I thought maybe I would maintain my surgical privileges and be able to do it. But I have what we call micro practice at Vitality. So it's me and a nurse and my nanny answers, you know, comes in a couple times a week and answers the phone. Luckily we're getting busier and busier. So I think I'm going to, she's either going to have to do it more. I'm going to have to hire a real receptionist, but, um, (laughs) but there's no time for me to do surgery because I run the practice. I do the business side of it too. And hopefully one day I'll get an office manager. But I mean, the, one of the main ideas of direct care is to be frugal in the beginning so that you don't lay out all this money and then go into debt and, you know, not be able to make it up. So um, I don't really have time to do the surgery, which I was going to just probably do minor surgery anyway. Um, but it, in the end, um, I, this year I gave up my surgical privileges. So I do gynecology. <clears throat> so I do you know, basic gynecology that I did in the office before, you know, annual exams. I do consults and second opinions. And I also do a ton. My niche is hormone therapy. So, <laughs> excuse me, I'm in a really good area here where I feel like there's not a ton of people who do that and there are a ton of people who need that women really have a hard time in perimenopause and married and menopause and I think there's a lot of false information out there so I decided that I would really focus in on that especially I mean at my age I'm going through it myself too so it's anything that I can relate to myself is one of the benefits I feel like because I'm super mm-hmm. invested obviously and that's yeah. the same, so same thing with the aesthetics I mean I'm I, I love skincare and Botox and fillers and expensive creams and all that stuff. So again, perfect. And same thing with wellness. You know, I, I try to be super healthy. 
I left traditional practice for probably 50 reasons and sleep and a normal schedule and less stress. I mean, all of that played into it as well. So that's important to me. So, um, so those are kind of the three components of my practice. One thing I do that's a little niche is something called um, bioidentical hormone pelleting. So we put these, it's bioidentical hormones, but we actually, they're, they're pellets similar to like the size of a grain of rice. And we put them in the fatty part of the, the buttock and they last for an extended period of time. But it's something that in less urban areas, not as many people have heard about. Um, so it's really taken off here and I'm the only one around here who does it. So it's, that's been pretty cool too. Is that like a slow release hormone, like a yes. slow release estrogen or something, for instance? Or... And testosterone, okay. yes. Testosterone. And or okay. testosterone. So it's, I do it for men and women, which has also been a change. You know, I mean, I used to only see women and now I see a lot of men. So, and then of so, course the direct care is the backbone of my practice. Go into, yeah, explain the direct care, how you, your pricing and sort of how your uh, expectation is for maintaining a patient population. Sure. So um, when I initially decided to go down this path, I got a ton of help from um, the greatest people on the direct care website. I, I, have you heard of Josh Umber? I would imagine you have. Yes, I've heard. I've not actually interviewed him, but yes, I've heard of him. Yeah, he's wonderful. And you should interview him because he's a great, great guy and super smart. But anyway, he helped me with the pricing because I wasn't sure what to do. Um, a lot of direct primary care physicians, their prices are higher than mine, but they, yeah. they are primary care. So they cover a, a wider scope than I do. First of all, for the direct care part of my practice, I only see women because really at the heart of it, I am just, just in quotes, a gynecologist. <laughs> so I, you know, I don't feel like I should necessarily be doing, uh, well, I don't do anything cardiac and I don't do anything with diabetes. Like I have on my website, which by the way is www.vitalitygyn.com. Um, I have a list of what I do cover and it's pretty extensive, but it's, it's women's health. But as an obstetrician, which I did for all those years, most primary care doctors wouldn't even touch a pregnant woman. So I was the one that was dealing with her reflux and her rashes and you know, her joint pain and her back pain, all that stuff anyway. So I feel like I do, you know, I, I am comfortable with a lot of things. It's just, there are certain things that I feel like I should not be doing. So that limited my practice. So therefore I felt that my prices should not be as high as perhaps like a direct primary care physician who can do all that stuff. So really I kept my prices in my opinion, extremely low. Um, and I'll just tell you that it's age-based and that's the way most direct care physicians do it. So if you're under 21, it's $25 a month. If you're 21 to 45, it's $35 a month. And if you're 45 and older, it's $45 a month. So in my opinion, I, I think that's a steal. And I will tell you that initially, I thought my goal would be around 600 patients. Now, when I figured that out, that was for all direct care. Um, and we are, as of today, at 599 patients. And wow. I, know, I know, and it's been a year and a half. I'm super happy. But I will tell you that they're not all direct care. I wound up doing more of a hybrid because I... I can't include like Botox in that price or filler or the pelleting or any of that stuff. So I have wound up with a smorgasbord of options, which some of the direct care people would tell you is not a good idea. So far for me, it has worked beautifully, but I just think you have to be open-minded and, and have a, a decent sense for business and you'll figure it out. I mean, it's market, it's, it's a uh, market oriented, right? I mean, yes. it's, you know, if the market says, Hey, the people want to come in for an exam every once in a while, or they want to just have specialized care, then it seems, it seems logical to me. I mean, I, th I feel like when people talk about hybrid, when the direct primary care, they're oftentimes talking about using insurance and not using insurance. And that becomes very complicated, especially when you have government payers involved like Medicare, Medicaid. Yes, that's correct. I take no insurance at all. None. And, and I will never go back to that. That has freed me tremendously. That was another issue with traditional medicine. You know, I mean, I, obviously, we all feel this way that they stand between us and the patient. And that's ridiculous. And I don't want anyone telling me what I can and can't order. And there's so much out there now, like GoodRx, if your listeners, you know, don't know what it is, mm -hmm. it's an app for your phone, but you can get generic prescriptions for so much cheaper, even if you have insurance, you don't have to use it. So um, yeah, I didn't want anything to do with that. So my, in my mind, hybrid means I don't only have the membership model. I have a la carte. And exactly what you said, some women really truly only see their gynecologist once a year. So why would they want to pay $35 a month? Well, I can tell you a lot of reasons why they might want to, but some can't or don't want to, and that's fine. So I have a hybrid. And so for those patients, it's $99 once a year for an annual exam, plus the cost of the pap smear. Now they can use their insurance for the pap because the lab takes insurance. It's just that I don't take insurance. So you know, we really, they, honestly, if they have insurance, most insurances as of today 
will pay for a pap smear because it's preventative care. So really they can get away with a $99 exam and I can spend an hour with them and talk to them about whatever they want. Whereas if they go see the regular gynecologist it's probably 15 minutes. Yeah. And if 15. Right. Um, and so do you find that, that you do the same, do you do the same things as lots of direct primary care? I mean, most States have, uh, pharmacy distribution rule, uh, rules so you can dispense medications. Uh, they also are finding discounted laboratory, you know, an examination or for like a radiological tests. Uh, do you do that as well? Or do you just primarily focus on just the women's health stuff? No, I, uh, the only thing I don't do out of what you just said is the medications because honestly, it's just a lot more work and a lot more, mm -hmm. um, administrative stuff. And again, it's just me. So I haven't jumped into that yet. I don't know if I will or not either, because it'd probably be easier for me because I don't need all the medications that a primary care physician would need. I mean, mine are obviously, you know, more specific. However, um, I did, I do um, contract with the labs and oh my gosh, if you do. So on Facebook, I have a um, vitality gynecology, aesthetics and wellness, and I have a whole thing on direct care. It's a video of me. There's only two videos. Well, I think there's only two videos up there on that page. And, um, one of them is about the bioidentical hormone pelleting. and the other one is about direct care. And I use real life numbers and I compare, I compare what people pay for their labs with my special pricing versus what their insurance will charge them. And let me just tell you that we are getting robbed right and left by these yeah. insurance companies. It is sickening when you see the difference. So yes, I have special pricing that I pass on to my direct care patients and they love it and rightly so. And I also have um, relationships with radiology, pathology, some of the orthopedics and specialists, like one of the GI practices in town has met with me so I could get discounts on colonoscopy. I love it. I mean, I feel like it's free market medicine and that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the great thing with the market is it rewards those who provide value that are perceived by by people, and and I mean, obviously, you're providing lots of value. I mean, partly is because it's so expensive to care elsewhere. I mean, it's kind of a sad state of affairs that it that everything's just so so expensive. But you know, that's just the way it is, and it's it's allowed a, a way for physicians to innovate and be disruptive in the market and and find niche that professionally they oftentimes find really great. I mean, just from a just exactly what they, how they want to be treating people. Do you, with your, I imagine you have some sort of electronic record system as well. Yes. Uh, you're probably not paper charting. How, how is, how is the charting different for you than it was when you were in the hospital with the sort of traditional third party payer based <laughs> electronic record system? Oh, well, it's like night and day. So in, we had, unfortunately, my office where I worked before was not, well, not unfortunately, but it was a private practice. So it was a different EHR than what was in the hospital. The hospital was Epic. And I can't even remember the name of the one that we used in the office, but two different ones. So they didn't talk to each other. The one that I use is actually invented, I, I believe, by Atlas MD. It's called yeah. Atlas MD. And then, the, so Josh Umber, his... Yep conglomeration I came up with it and it's <laughs> it's made for direct care so first of all because I don't take insurance I mean my notes can be whatever I want them to be I mean I was obviously for all those years I did it the way I did it so I haven't really veered from that but I don't need any codes I don't need any ICD-10 codes because I don't I don't bill like that so that's been wonderful and um, I mean I just write what I need to write and I it's a great system I mean nothing's perfect again but um, I do love it well, I don't love it, but I like it. <laughs> I like it more than any other EHR I've ever used. And it's convenient. And one of the one of the amazing things about direct care is that we can email and text with the patients. They just sign they sign a release that says, look, we're going to email and text and we can't 100% guarantee your security. I mean, I still have extra HIPAA malpractice and all that stuff. I take all the same precautions that I would, but the patients love it. And with this Atlas, we can text and then that text automatically goes into their chart for each patient and I can access it anywhere. So it's so much easier to do it from home. So if I want to leave earlier, if I'm done early, but then I get all these phone calls, I don't, it's right at my fingertips all the time, whether it be on my laptop, my desktop or on my phone. Yeah. Well, and to be clear, of course, no one enjoys charting okay. or paperwork in the history of the world, I think. So yeah. <laughs> no matter what your profession is, I don't think anyone enjoys charting things. Uh, but I think, you know, with the electronic health record systems and the fact their their emphasis on billing and capturing various components to maximize billing charges and or it's to uh, make sure it captures everything that to charge within a hospital system for every, you know, toothpick that was used or tongue depressor that it's that its focus has lost uh, from a data entry or actually I should say um, uh, exam or patient specific entries to just just tons and tons of data for charge captures 
And so, which is why it drives physicians and nurses equally uh, insane. So let's switch, um, switch uh, lanes here for a second. So you serve on the American uh, Osteopathic Board of Gynecology. OBGYN, yep. Yes. And uh, why did you end up on that board, I guess, is the first question. Because you've only been on it a couple of years now. So how did you end up getting involved in that? Actually, so it's a little, the semantics are a little confusing. So it is the AOBOG. And so that's where the examining board, we give the oral exams um, to to every osteopathic OBGYN who wants to be board certified. So initially, a friend of mine, my partner, uh, one of my partners when I was in Iowa, he was on it. And also my mentor, Tony Piccolo. So he was my residency director. He was an examiner. So between the two of them, they basically recruited me as the long and short of it. Um, (laughs) Hey, she's smart. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I've been doing that though since 2010, being a board examiner. But I, I... so we would go and give the exam and then every oral board examiner has to be on a committee. So I wound up on the written exam committee. So not only do we give the oral exam, but then somebody has to write the, and since we're the board, the primary written exam that the residents take before they graduate. And then there's also, um, well, this is changing, but there's been this, um, the, the, um, recertification exam that we have to take right. every seven years. So somebody, there's a committee for that. And then there's the oral exam committee. Uh, and then there's also something, this new thing called OCC, which is continuing um, maintenance of certification, which I, I know you're sure you know plenty about that. So there's those four different committees. Um, and uh, I was on the written exam committee. So I did that for a number of years and then I moved up, you know, I mean, I, the, the wonderful man, Lee Irving, who was the, um, chair of the written exam committee, he retired. He, he, and he was done with all of it. And I took over and I became the chair of the written exam committee. So by doing that, that put me on the board of the board. That's where the semantics is funny. Uh, I see. That's only been probably two or three years. Um, I don't even know. It's, it's at least, I think it'll be three years in December, but I'm not sure. But, um, so now I, I chair that written exam committee. Um, and I have a co-chair, uh, Linda Karachi, who is wonderful. So between the two of us, we run that committee and that is a lot of work. You know I mean? We do the written exam for every osteopathic OBGYN in the country. Plus we still go to the oral exams twice a year. That's in Chicago. And then, um, we, um, you know, my committee meets at, at, we tack our committee meeting onto the annual ACOOG committee, which is the college. Um, and because the whole committee, my written exam committee, we meet at least once a year to go over the questions that we write and we have to write the questions and vet the questions. So anyway, that's how I got into it. And I have to tell you that I love it. The people are amazing and the best and smart and wonderful. And I, I couldn't be, work with a better group of people. And I mean it. It's funny because most of those stories always begin with, with you know, where someone asks for a volunteer and everyone takes a step back and you're left standing there. And so you end up as the one yeah. who, who takes. And uh, yeah, sounds like pretty much that. They, they uh, recognize someone who's smart and they thought, hey, this, she could probably do this. Um, so just to, for, for those, and I always say my unofficial demographics are half people have not, are not physicians or in medical, the medical industry at all. And so... Just briefly, when you go to uh, your medical school, you then do your residency training in whatever specialty you choose. Every specialty has their own certification, initial certification process. They all, at, at a minimum that I'm aware of, have at least a written exam. Some of them have an oral exam, which is what you're talking about, which is you've fit, you've, once you pass your written exam, you then go to some place where you are given scenarios or cases and they try and people ask you what you do in the situation and then you do something and something goes wrong. And so then you have to just to further to, to see that you've got a good thought process. And so that's the, and so that's part of the certification process. Um, I know some surgeons, they have to present cases as well for certain specialties. Um, and then, so that's a different process than the, the sort the recertification process, which is, um, what have we talked about a number of times in the show as well? Um, so there's a lot of resistance within, within medicine and, I'll add myself as one of those who's a resistor, which is one of the reasons I launched the podcast to talk about main certification. But um, when I'm involved in my our state medical society, I'd say unofficially 95% of physicians are opposed to the maintenance certification process, the time-limited aspect of their um, uh, of their certification, the fact that you know they're charged a lot of money and they're they're forced to do CMEs or um, education that they think is maybe not useful to practice. For instance, you know, 
you're in a practice where you don't do obstetrics. You're, you have no intention of doing obstetrics the rest of your career. And I imagine the certification process, you have to maintain a level of knowledge uh, and competency or you keep up with stuff with obstetrics that's probably going to be of no benefit to your patients. How do you, uh, how do you re- reply to those sort of, I guess, critiques of the maintenance certification process? Well, I know it's a controversial topic and I, and the money bothers me too, but I got to tell you, I mean, I'm just like a, such a lifelong learner. I'm so curious about everything. I, I read like nobody's business anyway. So why not get credit for it? You know, I, I don't have as much of a problem with it as a lot of people, but I get it. You know, I totally do. Um, I, I, for us, for, you know, the AOBOGs, there was, there was a time when people had a, um, certification that didn't have an expiration and now and now we do have the expiration and i i mean things change but that's that's a little i, I don't know i don't think that that's necessarily fair but whoever said life was fair but um at least for our board <laughs> anybody who's a board member who had an um a certification that didn't expire they have in order to be on the board they have to do the maintenance of certification but I got to tell you that at the AOBOG, we are, have made some significant changes and it's actually supposed to launch either this fall or in the spring of 2020, where we are going to get rid of our written test. Um, I, I mean, I think that it might have to stay like it, for people who as an option, but primarily we're going to do push um, notifications and, and on your phone so that you do little, um, we'll tell you, okay, so you need to read X, Y, Z um, for our, our college um, and the ABOG, the, so the American Board of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they mm-hmm. put out um, um, got practice guidelines and and society things, and that's kind of what we base everything off of. So we'll say, okay, so you'll be responsible for practice bulletin sixteen and seventeen. And I mean, honestly, you should know those practice bulletins inside and out anyway. If you're practicing OBGYN position, I hear what you're saying. If I'm just doing GYN, then do I really need to know the OB? Probably not. But I don't know. I, like I said, I'm rare, but it, it doesn't bother me. Plus, I did it for so long anyway. It, I know it, you know, I mean, I lived that life. And that's, as a surgeon and as an obstetrician, you have to be immersed in it or you'll fail. So, um, or get yourself into trouble, maybe is a better way to say it. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, they're not long, those those uh, practice guidelines. You know, maybe two pages. And they're chock full of good information. So, we'll say, okay, you're responsible for this. Then we'll send out a little quiz with maybe, like, two questions on your phone. And I honestly can't remember how many times a week or I'm sorry, how many times a month that will come out or, or quarterly or whatever it is, but whatever it is, you, you, it's like an open book test basically. I mean, it's not even a test. It's two questions. You've got, you know what you need to have in order to pass it. So you read it or, and then you answer your questions. If you fail, you get a chance to retake it and then um, you're good for the year and that will replace the test. So I feel like, you know, the whole goal, if it wasn't about the money, there's nothing wrong with us staying up to date on stuff. We should. Um, But yeah, I mean, but when you think about it, who's going to pay? Somebody's got to write those questions. You have to have technology to do it. I mean, it has to be paid for. And so just like everything, unfortunately, the world revolves around money. But um, yeah, that's that's my feeling of it. I think we're trying to stay forward thinking as as a group, the AOBOG, and make it as easy as we can. But I don't know that maintenance of certification will ever go away. I mean, all everybody, lawyers have it, nurses have it. I mean, everybody has it. My mom was an accountant. They have it. Um, so I don't think it's going to go away. Yeah, I guess I would I would only counter in saying that the main certification that you're talking about with other professions is not actually a recertification, where they lose, it's not... Um, it's not the same. You don't retake the bar every uh, 10 years. And a lawyer's never, once you take the bar, you just take it one time. So uh, you have to maintain your membership of the bar association or something like that. But so it's a little different. Uh, you know, most states, all, in fact, every state that I'm aware of has CME requirements that you have to stay up to date. And the, you know, ours in Michigan, it's 150 hours every three years. So it's pretty extensive, far more than most states. Um, I know that there was a, there's a relationship, and for those who are not aware, there's we're talking about osteopathic medicine. There's allopathic. So if you have your doctor as an MD, they're an allopathic medicine. A DO is osteopathic. There's a little difference in training. I mean, it, fundamentally, they're pretty much the same. I think osteopathics do more with physical manipulation and things like that. But it, essentially, they're the same. Um, but they have their own their own organizations, both professionally and um, and then also obviously with your training. But there is some there's going to be a combining of these 
at some point, I think, I mean, I feel like there's a merging of the societies as just like just physicians in general. Is there, is that happening? On, like with ABMS, are they getting, I don't know what the component is for the, the osteopathic, to be honest. Yes, it's happening. It's, it's been happening. So uh, it's a point of contention, I think, among a lot of people, a lot of DOs, because um, what's happening is the, um, the, the AMA um, is now, I, I don't want to use the words taking over, but um, they're trying to. You, ha- can, you can say that here in the show. You know, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, but that yeah, date. so they're, they're the training programs. So whereas osteopathic residencies, like mine, for example, it was like a mom and pop kind of show, but I loved it. I mean, it was bread mm-hmm. and butter stuff. In a big MD institution, I feel like, yes, there's attendings, but residents train residents. The older residents train the younger residents. Well, it wasn't like that for me in residency. My attendings trained me. Yes, other residents were there and they were helpful, but really it was the attendings that trained me. It was the attendings that I worked with in surgery. It was the attendings that fixed things when something went wrong. And and I told you, my my uh, Dr. Piccolo is he's my mentor. He's a lifelong friend now, and and so is my co-resident, you know, Mary Donna Ravazio. I'll give her a shout out. She's amazing. But it's just it's just that. You know, it's just different. And, but, but unfortunately, my residency, residency program is closing because a, these little residency programs cannot meet the standards of the AMA because they're just used to so much bigger and more money. Um, so a, a bigger administrative staff, um, you know, all, that, all the requirements that they have to hit, and then um, all the money that you need to do that. Well, a lot of these smaller programs can't do it. I mean, we're just not made for that. So that's sad. I mean, it's just, it's just sad to me. And I feel like my residency program put out a lot of fabulous, fabulous people. And some people thrive in a big environment and some people thrive in a small environment. And Hey, that's why there's, you know, huge universities and then private liberal arts schools. And that's okay. But that that's one of my issues. But by 2020, uh, which is obviously next year, it's going to yeah. be a done deal. So yeah, I mean, it's sad. I don't even know what to so- is is it right? I mean, it, these are there are forces that are that are so large and that are so um, entrenched. I guess that there's no there's no way for one person or even a, a group of people to really stop this this momentum. Uh, is it AMA or is it we talking the ACGME? I the mean, ACGME. I, I honestly, you're right. Okay, it's right. ACGME, so, my bad. Yep. Okay. No, I just want. I was I wasn't sure that AMA was involved in that, but no. I wouldn't be surprised if people on them are also involved in ACGME. I'm sure there's a lot of. Um, symbiotic uh, relationship with those organizations. So, that, so it's a, I think it's like the American College of Graduate Medical Education. Is, I think that's what ACGME stands for. Yeah. In my head, it's um, just that the AOA had such a hand in this. And then our right. allopathic sister society is the AMA. But you are correct. It's the ACGME. Yeah. So I apologize. So so in, in many ways, it was the it, it's these large, so the AMA and the AOA sort of colluded to, to get this done. Um, and to the detriment, because I think uh, I feel like in places where there aren't a lot of DOs, there is a stigma against DOs, less now than there probably used to be. I know where there's less less of doctors or something like that. Um, I know my dad would talk about who's a DO. He would talk about that occasionally. Um, and so I think it's a way of probably the AOA thought, saw, I'm guessing they saw it as a way to legit legitimize you know, the DO status more. And so they thought, oh, well, if we just adopt all these other um, regulatory bodies... The problem is, is the regulatory bodies are massive and the expense is tremendous. Like you mentioned, uh, we were looking at, our group was looking at possibly, you know, if we wanted to launch an anesthesia residency and it's a quarter million dollars per resident per year of just administrative, just cost. Uh, you've got to hire all these people and it, it really, it, there's a reason that there aren't that many extra residency positions because, because it's so expensive. You have to have either taxpayer or, you know, government money or something in way, in order to pay for it. Um, yeah. And I imagine for the DO programs, you could have a small sort of program and make it work, but you can't, You no one can pay. I mean, there's no way it would be residents bring in that much revenue to justify that cost, especially in this era when, you know, everything's so expensive. Well, that's absolutely correct. And you know what the other side of that problem is, is that the medical schools don't have those issues so they can put out more and more graduating students with, and yet our residency spots are limited. And now what? Oh yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that is entirely different different question, but it's, uh, it is a problem because we, we've seen it in Michigan here. We've had a number of medical schools open, uh, yeah. since, and, and there's been no change in the residency positions as far as I'm aware. Uh, that's been pretty much frozen. The state does provide some funding, but you know, the state doesn't have 
the number of the millions of dollars and they got all kinds of other things to pay for like medicaid or the roads or the school you know other things and so so that you're really you're really relying on the cms which is a center for medicaid and medicare services to pay for these residency positions and that has been frozen that the number of spots they pay for has been frozen for years uh and so right you're training these more, more medical students and you're having people having trouble matching because they're also competing against the foreign medical graduates who come in who may have completed residency in their home country and then come here and they're going to look a lot look to be a lot better re- resident uh, than someone who's just straight out of med school here. And so and now it's that, challenging. Yeah, it is. And and so when a residency program closes like mine, that's mm-hmm. that many less spots. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And and you're looking at people who are coming out of medical school with a quarter million dollars of debt on yep. average. Yep. And so some are like 400,000, some are, you know, 100 or zero. But uh, that's a... You tell you what, you finish medical school at a quarter million dollars to debt, and then you find out you can't get a training program, and you can't. That means you can't in most states get licensed to practice medicine. Yep, that's a real problem. Yeah, <laughs> so, there's so many problems. And, I mean, we could talk all yeah. day. Oh yeah, I know. And that, I've talked about, it, and I could tell you before we <laughs> went on the air that I've actually been encouraged, and in general, I think things are getting better. Uh, but there are just because there are people like you who are doing are finding ways around around the system in some ways, you know, is to uh, provide outside the insurance and provide value to patients and to provide a better experience for them than they'd get in any sort of traditional expensive system. Um, so I think it's really cool. Uh, one of the other things, going back to the board a little bit, the AOA was recently sued by a number of physicians uh, who said that because I think I, it was you had to be a member of AOA to get your to get your license or certification or something like that. Yes. And so. They sued. It was settled. So, I mean, I guess it technically didn't win the suit, but the AOA basically gave up and said, you don't have to be a member of AOA. Um, there are now three that I'm aware of lawsuits on various ABIM uh, is one of them, but three ABMS uh, specialty boards. I suspect by the end of next year, every specialty board will have a lawsuit against them uh, for antitrust reasons and for occlusion and those sorts of things. Um, and which is, I think, causing the, the ABMS member societies to really to really restructure how they do their maintenance certification. There are also lots of state legislation in a number of states, um, like, I mean, our, I know our state, where it prevents people from being um, excluded from licensure requirements to be, uh, to be maintenance. Of, just you have to be initially certified, but you don't have to maintain your certification. Also for insurance payments and also hospital credentialing kind of depends on, from state to state. What is what is your board? I mean, it sounds like you're changing things. I assume because of because of complaints and and questions and sort of how the process works. What is the uh, you know your your board or just the AO or the whatever the AOA equivalent is for the ABMS? What, what are they thinking about seeing this? I mean, I I got to imagine they're a little bit worried. Well, that's such a loaded question. That's a huge question, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, I will say that. I, I don't, the, the reason that we're pushing out our new certification the way we're doing it is not really because of what happened with the lawsuits. It's because we're trying to make ourselves a more, a, a more um, attractive option because now that the two societies are going to be merged, the two, you know, screening or um, training programs, a resident who's coming out can choose a pathway so you can go allopathic or you can go osteopathic and what and, and you can so you can be an md and take the al, uh, the osteopathic boards but why would you is is that's the, that's a rhetorical question well one reason you might want to is because of our our um maintenance of certification option you know it's nice you don't have to read i don't know how many journal journal articles that the um allopath OBGYNs have to read, but it's a lot of them. And, you know, wouldn't you rather just have these things on your phone that come and, you know, it's cheaper or whatever. I mean, I don't, I can't compare apples to apples just because I don't know everything about what they do, but um, we are trying to make ourselves more attractive in so many ways, which is great. I mean, I do think we're doing a good job, but we're doing that because the AOA decided to go this route with ACGME. (laughs) So, but to address your issue about the lawsuits, I mean, you're correct. There was one against the AOA and it has been settled and now um, certification is uncoupled from membership. And, but yet the AOA still, uh, I belong and I will, I, I, it, not that you have to, you certainly don't have to, it's elective, but they manage your CME, they offer CME, they offer free CME, they, um, and no matter what, it's still state to state. My state too, you need, I'm in Pennsylvania and you need X amount of credits. Um, and they have, some of them have to be 
you know, 1A, which is specific for osteopaths. So that's tough. I mean, even nationally, if they fix these issues, the state still, they need to get on board. So we're not even close, I think, because of that, at least not in my state. I mean, again, I don't know what's going on all over the country, state to state, but in Pennsylvania, nothing's changed. So. so that's interesting. So you're saying they're going to be basically you'll have two boards. Yes. So you'll be so you have two boards, and so you'll in some ways compete with each other. Yes. Um, so, but let's say I'm a let's say I'm a, a resident and I complete the allopathic board. I'm an MD. I complete the allopathic boards, and then I say oh, this is this recertification process is ridiculous. Um, I think the AOCO, sorry AOBOG. I love acronyms, right? AOBOG. Has a has a better process for me than than my than the allopathic board. Can they switch over, or if they started the allopathic path where they can't get recertified, or how does that work? I'm 99 you know? percent sure that once you start the allopathic path, you have to stay on it. And same thing with the osteopathic, but I, okay. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure. But I, okay. I, I think I know we've talked about that, and I should know. I just can't remember all the details. But it could. But I mean, it, in some ways, you could just all you have to do is just change your rule. Right. I mean, within your board, you could say, well, we'll allow if you've gotten if you've completed the allopathic certification, you would be allowed to follow our pathway. I mean, right. I mean, you can recertify anyone you want as long as you felt that the initial certification process was adequate. Right. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. I mean, that's a logical thing to say. Um, but there are so many rules that do come from CMS. And um, oh, sure. Believe me, you'd think that we're an independent board, but we are not. Actually, we used to be more independent, but the AOA took over everything for us now. So really, we answer to them. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. We do. Well, it's it, it is interesting the the regulatory aspect of of all of medicine. I mean, I think we have, I think there's without a doubt we're the most regulated industry and. Um, and profession in the country. I mean, both at a state level, local, nationally, uh, with our licensing, our credentialing, our um, education as, education aspect, and then of course, anytime you're practicing with you know FDA and the um, DEA, there's there's so many um, there's an alphabet soup of, of regulatory bodies that JCO that control things within within our settings. So that's got to be another reason <laughs> for you to to go and do what you're doing, right? I mean, because uh, I've talked to a number of docs. They said one of the best things about leaving the hospital and the in these health groups is they get away from ninety percent of these these agencies. You know, you've you've left the JCO, you've left JCO behind, and eight triple AHC or um, the I mean the DEA oftentimes unless you're prescribing you know opioids. So I mean, is that has that been something that you've noticed in your practice? Yes. I haven't gotten away from the DEA because I mean, I still, you know, if someone's in pain, I have the, the a license to prescribe narcotics, but I've never been a big narcotic prescriber anyway, but the testosterone mm -hmm, yeah. I need my DEA license for. What you need to, you need a DEA license for testosterone? Yes. Yes. Is that because of uh, anabolic steroids? And the... Yes. Although, yes. Oh, I mean, it's a schedule. I forget what schedule it is, testosterone, but you need a DEA license to dispense it. So, um, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> I would keep it anyway because, I mean, you know, sometimes I, you know, I deal with endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain and you know, people have pain. So, um, yeah, it's not expensive, right? You might want to do hospice work or something. Who knows when you yeah, want to do I just think it. it's yeah. important. I, and I can't give it up anyway because of the pelleting. But, um, uh, and just on a side note, I'm also a medical marijuana um, certifier for the state, which is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but um, oh, why? yeah, it's it's fascinating. You still have that there. Yeah, we have we, ours is legalized now, and so okay. we don't ha we don't have any of that. I don't. I was never part of that anyway. But I don't think we have. I don't think physicians are involved in marijuana distribution at all now. Hmm. That's, well, I would that would surprise me. I mean, we are not um, involved in the distribution. I'm just involved in the certifying. But I, would, I well, know right, in Pennsylvania yeah. they've been talking about it going recreationally, but they're still going to keep the medical side of it for various reasons. But anyway, um, mm -hmm. that is an option. And obviously CBD is like really big right now too for pain and inflammation. But that being said, um, yes, it is doing what I'm doing is you'd think it would cut it out even more, but I'm really – I'm really like by the book. And so I want to make sure that if I don't know that Jayco couldn't stop by my office, you know, I mean, why couldn't they? I'm still a medical office or at least the state board could. So I really try and, you know, we have a handbook and, and we do, we follow HIPAA and all that stuff. So I, I don't know. It's better. I mean, the insurance companies alone, I mean, I don't need eight people in my staff to just deal with prior offs and getting somebody on the phone. So that alone has saved me, but I just want to make sure that I, I'm just super cautious. So it's, but it's significantly better, at least 60% better. Right. Well, and I don't suggest that you don't, you like have, you know, 
shards of glass laying around and rats running through right. your clinic and you know i mean that is that state inspector's going to find it or you know you have to the fire marshal might come by and obviously you have to have a safe a safe environment but uh you you know jaco would never come through your office because you're not you're not unless you um unless you volunteer to be inspected and get their certification which i think you'd have to be insane to do no i yeah, um, no and you're right i have nothing which, to do with eh, nothing really to do with the hospital anymore i mean i still have privileges but yeah sure yeah i mean i think most people maintain privileges just because they don't know if they ever will ever need them. Right. It's an expense for most hospitals, but it's only a couple hundred bucks a year or something right. like that. So we talked about a lot of stuff. I, <laughs> I appreciate your frankness and, uh, and you're willing to talk about your practice and your uh, time on the board. Cause I find that very interesting sort of how people get on those things and sort of what they do. Um, where would people find more stuff about you aside from vitality.com or I'm sorry, it's not vitality.com. What is it? Vitalitygyn.com. Yes, right. GYN.com, which will all be in the show notes at theparadox.com. Uh, where else can people find what you're writing and what you're up to? Um, well, that Facebook page is really good, I got to say, because I put up links every day to a lot of stuff about wellness in particular, which is really my current favorite thing. Um, so exercise, sleep, um, diet. And when I say diet, I don't mean dieting. I mean what we put in our mouths for the rest of our lives. So um a ton about that. Uh, so that's that by that page, that Facebook page is Vitality GYN or no, it's Vitality. Sorry, Vitality Gynecology Aesthetics and Wellness. I'm also on Twitter. My handle is Dr. Deb Herc, H-E-R-C-H. Uh, I'm on Instagram. That's Vitality GYN. Um, I'm all, all over social media. I have some YouTube videos, but they're pretty old. Um, the best videos are the most updated ones are on the Facebook page, but uh, I do have YouTube videos and they are like little educational series about, um, like pap smears and um, abnormal bleeding, that sort of thing. And then mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of blogging and TV and whatnot. And you just Google me, you can find everything. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, do you have a website or do you blog just on your, on your Vitality GYN page? Um, I blogged on uh, my old practice website. Um, oh, okay. But if you Google it, All you right. could find it. And um, my website has links to, uh, there's um, a social media link at the bottom. So if you go to the website, Vitality GYN, then um, there's like a YouTube link. So you can see some of those um, older videos for, you know, like the pap smear stuff and everything. I and mean, things in medicine obviously are always changing. So some of that stuff's outdated, but still, I think it's educational. Some of it doesn't change. Sure. I mean, the pelvic exam is pretty much the same, right? I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't change significantly. Nope. <laughs> any, nope. Like the physical exam. Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah. It, I find it's really, it's really challenging. And personally, I've only been able to kind of stay active on Twitter. I, it's hard to do all these different, um, to try and like for just my podcast, it's really hard to do Instagram and Twitter and snap. I mean, I, you just don't have time to really, to really do them well. So I hats off to you for even doing two, which is <laughs> you know, pretty impressive. Thanks. It is. It's, a, it's, I mean, it's a lot, but you know, over cheaper. <laughs> don't sleep a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've, you've traded in the obstetrics just for more boards and uh, family and all kinds of other things with your, yeah. your own practice. Yeah. Well, I thought I'd sleep and then, um, yeah, then God laughed at me and said, just kidding. That's yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> sleep and you're dead. Um, so I'd like to thank you again for being on the show. If you're in the Harrisburg area, you could be that 600th patient and fill out her patient panel <laughs> for Vitality GYN. So you get a free stomach exam. That's right. <laughs> I don't... I don't know. Is that a big seller? I don't I don't get a lot of people showing up for that. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't well, think I would have people that, lining up at the door for that one. Yeah, I think it's probably safe to say that's not going to be on your advertising. <laughs> so, well, thanks so much for being here today. I appreciate it. And uh, if, always, again, all the show notes will be at theparadox.com. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Oh, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> she says my All right, sorry. Sorry. No, I'm so enthusiastic. I, I love the enthusiasm. <laughs>
I love it. And I didn't tell you I was going to do that. So that's fine. <laughs>